is up internet. Remember the tomato soup queen. My name is Matthew Kroll. And talk to me, old timer. What's on the noodle? My name is Shahir Dowd. And this is the only podcast about movies, specifically the film The Power of the Dog. I mean, just how powerful is this dog? I don't know. It could be, I, 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 we don't want to go back to the Isle of Dogs because uh, nope. they could be too powerful. I keep getting the Back to the Future song, that's the Power of Love song stuck in my, that's the Power of Dog. Dog. <laughs> yeah, and I don't know why. It's like, it, that felt like a very you-ism. Like it doesn't quite fit, yeah, but, but it's like it's, it's, it's just there. That's what I do. I, I uh, squeeze into places that I shouldn't be. <laughs> Um, How valuable are your bones? (laughs) There's also um, uh, there's an upcoming film with The Rock and Kevin Hart playing uh, super uh, like the uh, the the pits of superheroes. Oh God! uh, An animated film. I I actually forgot the title. I actually posted it on Twitter with the title "The Power of the Dog" the other day. But uh, (laughs) maybe that is going to be. Maybe that's the sequel. That's the sequel. I'm very glad that we are getting to talk about this film. This came out uh, towards the end of last year. As you know, I have been pushing our best of list as far back as possible because there's so many movies I want to include on that list. If you have movies that you would like us to include on that list, uh, well, if you here, let me put it this way. Yeah, no, let, let's see. Let's see what you're promising. Yeah, write us in at onlymoviepodcast at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter at onlymoviepod. Uh, I am I am holding our list, uh, our best of episode until we get a few more films in there. As I as I always do, if there is a film that you would like to see. If you, if there is a film you believe would make it to our respect, either of our respective top tens, let us know what it is so that we can make an evaluation where we'll push back even further. If uh, you want this to go till November, oh, if man, you want the yeah, best of 2020 to happen in November, what was that Wyclef's song? I'll be gone till November. I'll be gone we, we, till November. This, that, that is truly yeah. what this will be. That's fine. Uh, I'm fine. Yeah. With that. I, look, listen. Hey, you know what's fun about doing a movie podcast where no one pays you and you can choose your topics on the fly? Yeah. You can do whatever you want. You can do whatever you want. Yeah. Also, time is a construct. Uh, one of the things that we also did this week was that uh, I, if you follow me on Instagram, and I don't recommend it, uh, I will occasionally just post a poster of a movie that, I'm, that I've just been watching. Just, you know, sometimes people will message me about it or whatever. But it's just like, for me, it's just an easy way to remember. You know, instead of going to Letterboxd and logging, I just kind of like doing that. Uh, but there's a few people uh, who listen to the, uh, to the po- podcast who also do the same. Um, and one of them... Uh, I noticed was seeing a lot of films at the Sundance Film Festival. And as you might know, the Sundance Film Festival decided to go entirely online this year because of COVID. Um, And that should have prompted me to actually go, but I am a person with uh, barely enough time to do this podcast, let alone watch as many films as I would want to watch at the (laughs) Sundance Film Festival. Um, But so uh, Laura, uh, I reached out to Laura, who is a longtime listener and a great friend of the show, uh, and just asked if she would be willing and interested in in chiming in on the movie she saw at Sundance. Um, Wait, so that, Shahir, do we have an official correspondent from Sundance? We do have an official correspondent from Sundance who we are paying in ridiculous doll hairs. We're going to pay them. Uh, we'll pay, Laura, we'll pay you double what we get paid. <laughs> double, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, <laughs> so, uh, Laura did that. And again, uh, I really appreciate that she took the time to do that. Uh, she is it's very a sweet, yes. uh, terrific filmmaker herself and, um, someone that we love hearing from. And so towards the end of this episode, we will hear from Laura and her picks from Sundance. And the, the purpose of being, we just want to hear what movies we should be paying attention to in the next yeah. few months. Like yeah. I know out of last year, and this is another movie that I think we should do on the episode, uh, before the best of, uh, 2021, I believe that's the year. I don't I'm not know. Entirely 
sure. Uh, but uh, out of Sundance last year, Coda was a big deal, yep. uh, which is on streaming on Apple TV, and we didn't get to it. Um, and uh, it has uh, appeared on many top ten lists. Uh, I believe the other film is Nine Days. That uh, I, I actually, may, I'm not sure if Nine Days appeared at Sundance or not. Um, but uh, another film that has appeared on several top ten lists, and one that I maybe will get to, and uh, you will hear on our top ten list uh, when it comes out in uh, December of 2023. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, twenty twenty four at the absolute latest. Yeah, twenty twenty five if uh, you know the world hasn't imploded. Matt, um, how are you? I'm, you know, I'm, 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 I'm keeping on, keeping on. The ranch is still running. Nice. Um, the, the you know, we're 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 farming that uh, that hot internet content. Mm. Um, mm. just just trucking down the 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 click through tractors. And just making sure our our you know random a- anagram letters are doing great. Um, yeah, no, it's good. Uh, I was I was psyched to actually. Uh, I was saying to Sheer before the show started. This week has been one of those weeks that's like a little slower than usual, but you see the train coming. Yeah, and there's nothing you can do to make it like this due to factors. You can't like make this week a little busier to make the other weeks better. But one of the side effects of that was I got to casually, at my own leisure, not really have to like schedule in watching the movie for the week. Nice. I could just, I just, I could watch it when I felt like it. Hmm. And that was uh, weirdly, you'd think in 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 the last two years you'd have uh, we'd have more time. No, no, not <laughs> um, at all. And uh, so it was a nice, it was a very nice, almost. It felt almost indulgent. It felt like I could, I didn't have to be like, okay, well. All right, I have to schedule Monday, eight o'clock. This is what I'm doing. Like, nope. It was like I just could sit down, kick back, watch it. It was it was very pleasant. So did, overall, did, did to you answer make yourself your a nice question, cup of tea. I weirdly I did. Yeah. Were you in my living room? Of course I was. I don't drink tea ever. And you know, from, I did from, make from my apartment. A cup of tea. I can actually see uh, if I go to the rooftop of my apartment. I can actually uh, rear window you and like like look directly into your living room. I think if I, had, I, I if mean, I had a good pair of binoculars or a telescope that I'd ordered off Amazon when it was when there was Prime Day, uh, I would be able to see directly into your living room. Well, let me know if you do and give me tips on Resident Evil Eight because that's the only other thing I've been doing in that living room was watching Power of the Dog and playing <laughs> Resident Evil Eight. I don't know if it is any two more two more disparate uh, activities in life. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Just before we do that, just so I know, Resident Evil Eight. Yeah, yeah, nay. Oh, it's great. Oh, yeah. It's 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 phenomenal. It, it, actually, I'll go on a tangent here. I'm so sorry. Thank you for bringing <laughs> it up. <laughs> um, Resident Evil Eight is a direct sequel to Seven. I know that sounds silly. <laughs> that sounds... Hold on, let me back up. The Resident Evil plotline, for those of you who don't know from the video games, I'm not talking the Mila Jovovich movies. I'm talking the the video games themselves. Is batshit. Right. Even though those movies are batshit too. The but like they kind of did a weird reboot with seven where it like took place in like a Louisiana bayou house. I forget if that's exactly but it was like almost like it felt like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, not like a bunch of zombies. Okay. They've done leaps and bounds to connect them all together with the evil of the Umbrella Corporation and a bunch of other stuff. But you play as uh, a new character in those games, Ethan Winters, and you play as Ethan Winters in eight. <laughs> So much wackadoo stuff happens in Resident Evil Eight. I've never, I, I didn't finish Seven. I watched a five minute click through just to sort of get my, you yeah. know, get me caught up. It is so worth your time. It is, it is B movie schlock done with more production value than I think most films. And it is, it 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 does this perfect balance of 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 gameplay. Never getting sick of the gameplay. If it's being too much like a puzzle, it turns to action. If it's too much action, it turns to narrative. Like it does this really nice tightrope walk, and 
it takes you through almost every genre of horror. Okay. Like there's like obviously vampires? monsters and zombies. There's vampires. Nice. There's there's evil fish creatures. <laughs> there's there's like Got a the real body cabin in the woods going here. Yeah, there is. There's body horror, uh, sort of like in like old factories and th- like I don't know. It's long story short, it's excellent. I think it did win best narrative of the year last year at the video game awards. If people pay attention to those, or I, won, I actually do, and I and and I picked up It Takes Two based off uh, mm-hmm. winning uh, the best prize. And yeah, uh, I have interesting stories, but I feel like we've we've diverged. We're tangent video games. Anyway, Shahir, you have a PS5 now, right? Yeah, I do. You should play Resident Evil Eight. I should probably play Resident Evil Eight. There's it's, probably it, a lot of things I should play. It's also it's, the a, worst thing is I have my PS5 and I just use it to watch Netflix. I know. <laughs> I will just say it is a smooth playthrough. Yeah, like even and you can do it in small chunks. There's you know in Resident Evil you save at typewriters. There's always a typewriter around a corner. It feels like like I used to when when things were busy. I played it for like twenty minute half hour chunks at the most. Right. So like it's not one that you have to like. It's not Returnal. You you don't have Which, to sit down and do the whole thing. Yeah yeah. Anyway, sorry. This is a podcast about movies. <laughs> and, the power, and Jane Campion's The Power of the Dog. This is the first film that I believe on the episode that we've done about Jane Campion, specifically below. I have a story about Jane Campion, which I've told many a times. Uh, I'm not going to repeat it on this episode, but if you dig back, uh, you'll find me talking about uh, my brief interaction with Jane, my brief you're, and embarrassing interactions with Jane Campion. You're uh, really smooth. Smooth operator moment. My smooth, smooth operator moment. Uh, but I am excited to talk about Jane Campion, uh, not least of which is she's one of the most uh, preeminent film, uh, female filmmakers and filmmakers uh, uh, living today. Uh, I think one of only two women who have been nominated for an Academy Award who happen to be working at the same time. Um, and also uh, from my hometown of Wellington, New Zealand. Nice. Uh, uh, and The Power of the Dog was shot in New Zealand during COVID times, uh, probably around Canterbury or uh, close to Christchurch or somewhere like that. Uh, there's probably some trivia about exactly where this was filmed, but doubling as Montana. Um, New Zealand, of course, had an impeccable COVID safety record, which meant that they could actually do production in New Zealand, uh, unlike the rest of us. Um, And um, uh, I actually just really got a kick out of A, seeing New Zealand on screen, even knowing that it was meant to double for Montana, and then B, seeing some familiar faces on screen as well, people I know and uh, have met and worked with uh, in the past. I want to say about about New Zealand. I yeah. have something. I have something to say about New Zealand. All right. Hit me. Um, actually, no, it's not necessarily about New Zealand. But like, I I figured it was shot in New Zealand. I did not look that up. Yeah. But I've never been to Montana. Okay. Um, I don't in my head. I don't think Montana looks like where they shot. I, I look. Like, I look, uh, if you're a listener from Montana, please I write us in. in. I apologize in advance. But I got I got the again. It, this movie is in. Impeccably beautiful, like it, it is. It's it's incredibly gorgeous. Um, my impression of Montana, as I understand it, would be that it's perhaps a little dustier, maybe. Yeah, you know. I, I, yeah, but I don't. Whereas know. Whereas this I, is very clean and beautiful. Yeah, I mean, I, although again, this is me basing it off of literally nothing. I should just shut my mouth. I, I just, I when I saw it, I was like, oh, that's New Zealand, right? Like I just kind of was like, oh. They, uh, and I know a ton of stuff does that. That's not a slight in any way. I was just sort of it was it. it that was one of the only moments, uh, uh, one of the only hitch points where I was like, Montana. <laughs> All right, come on, guy, Montana. Yeah. Well, look, you've got Benedict Cumberbatch playing a, a, a grizzly Montanan as well. You know, the accent was you know, I, look, the accent was fine, but you know, yeah, whatever. It, it, it was hard not to divorce Sherlock Holmes and Doctor Strange from. Uh, 
uh, from Phil uh, in this movie. Yeah. Um, I will talk uh, a little bit about New Zealand uh, shortly, but Matt, could you tell us what The Power of the Dog is about? I sure could. Charismatic rancher Phil Burbank inspires fear and awe in those around him. When his brother brings home a new wife and her son, Phil torments them until he finds himself exposed to the power of love. <laughs> and that was a complete coincidence uh, that that is how the IMDb description ends, but I enjoyed it. You enjoyed it. Of course you did. It just I- saved a 10 out of 10 description would, would read again. New Zealand cinema, uh, it, it, obviously near and dear to my heart. And uh, um, by the way, uh, not to plug another podcast, but I will do this. Uh, over at the Blank Chick podcast right now, they're actually doing an entire miniseries about Jan Campion. Uh, and it was uh, difficult to listen to people uh, talk about New Zealand uh, and uh, and uh, the New Zealand film industry without like wanting to jump in and chime in, <laughs> you know, like immediately. Did you march down something? to the offices, the Blank Chick offices? Yeah, I should go down to the, the window. Say, Excuse me. Knock, knock, knock. Uh, I have some notes here for you. Yeah. No, no. They're, they're, uh, I love Blank Chick, and uh, they're great, and so they are doing an entire retrospective on Jane Campion's work, and we'll go into much more details than we will be able to in this episode, so please do listen to them. Uh, not that they need the plug from us. Um, but um, No, they do. Uh, I, I want to make it clear. Everyone needs the plug from us. I mean, we are we are the bump that Joe Rogan kind of, you know, like, it's because of us that Joe Rogan is on Spotify, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, we, we could go into the details, but we've already tangented so much about Resident <laughs> Evil 8 and, the, you know, all of the Sundance stuff, so let's just get to the movie, I think. Uh, just get to the movie, but then the the before we get to the movie, there is a there is a particular topic <laughs> I want to talk about, which is that in in the in the annals of New Zealand cinema, Sam Neill is an interesting figure because uh, um, in the early nineties, uh, Sam Neill was commissioned to produce a documentary about the cinema of New Zealand, and the phrase that he coined, and it's the title of his documentary, was called "The Cinema of Unease." Uh, which is something that uh, we talk, we discussed uh, at length in uh, at, while we were at film school. And the interesting thing about New Zealand cinema uh, is that, of course, for most Americans, the person that they will, uh, the two people that they'll probably associate it with um, is uh, Peter Jackson and Taika Waititi, who are, in terms of pop culture, um, at the forefront of what is happening today in terms of uh, big, big, big movies. Uh, but, of course, uh, Roger Donaldson uh, is another key figure there. Um, who directed uh, a couple of the Bond films as well as The Mask of Zorro. And uh, and then behind, uh, well, around those two filmmakers, as uh, or those three filmmakers, are is Vincent Ward, uh, who perhaps most famously in the United States uh, was known for directing uh, What Dreams May Come uh, with Robin Williams and, uh, and almost directing an Alien 3 movie, um, which we discussed on our episode with Josh Horowitz. What up, Josh? Uh, and Jane Campion. Now, I pulled this uh, from a dis- uh, discussion of James Campion because, unfortunately for me, this is, again, a, a little bit of a, a bit of a shame for me, which is that James Campion's been this, probably before Peter Jackson, one of the most notable New Zealand filmmakers, but, you know, like uh, one of the most important, significant New Zealand filmmakers. And she's a filmmaker whose work I have definitely seen. We've, uh, we've talked about it. We've had, we've played them in, mm-hmm. in our film classes. Uh, you can't do a class on film studies in New Zealand without talking about Jane Campion because she's so critical to uh, the development of the New Zealand film industry. Uh, but I, the key movie uh, for Jane Campion uh, is The Piano. And it's a movie that I hadn't seen up until uh, a few months ago. Oh, wow. H- have you seen The Piano? Yes, forever. I think I saw The Piano the year it came out, what, 93? 93 or something like that. 94, yeah. It's somewhere around that period. Um, and I feel... 
the 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 great shame there is that while I had adored Jane Campion's work, she's not a filmmaker that I had fallen in love with because I hadn't seen the film that I just knocked me off my feet kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And the reason I bring this back to Cinema of Unease is that uh, uh, Sam Neill kind of coined this phrase uh, with regards to the way both the landscape and the subject of of New Zealand cinema was, which is that if again, if Taika Waititi and Peter Jackson are the two um, um, fence posts by which you view New Zealand cinema, there's a much deeper, longer history uh, of very, um, uh, I would say, uneasy cinema, which is the, the term Sam Neill uses, uh, which has to, which which at the same time has to do with the landscape, but also has to do with what Sam Neill called a search for new, uh, a unique New Zealand identity. Whereas Australia had sort of developed itself uh, and and made some notable successes, particularly with its comedies. Um, new Zealand kind of lived in the shadow of uh, post-colonialist history um, related to its English heritage, but also its Maori and traditional traditions. Um, and so there was this sort of conflicting sense of identity. Uh, and so if the, some of the keystone films in New Zealand cinema are obviously The Piano and Once Were Warriors, which are mm. both films that uh, highlight maybe perhaps this uneasy tension. Uh, Sam Neill also points to another beautiful film, which we talked about on our episode with uh, Stephen Gallagher, uh, which is a film called uh, Vigil, um, which is incredible, uh, an incredible film, also set on a farm about the sort of uneasy tension. Between, and, 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 I, and I think this comes back to Jane Campion as well, an uneasy power dynamic that gets shifted in some way. And mm. that's not to say that the entire spectrum of New Zealand film fits into that category. Uh, and I'm sure our New Zealand listeners will be exactly like I was on our Blank Check episode, which is going, excuse me, sir, I have notes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I wanted to just highlight that because I think despite the fact that this is a, uh, an American, uh, ostensibly a New Zealand Amer- uh, British co-production about uh, Amer- an American story, there is this sort of underlying sense, for me at least as a viewer, of what it means to see New Zealand on screen. Um, I think that might come from that being where you're from. Like, I, I don't think that... For I will speak for the... I am the mad I speak for the average viewer like the Lorax does for the trees. I don't know if that comes across otherwise. Like, I... Well, I guess, re- rephrase what you were saying. Maybe I got lost in what you were saying. I didn't think of this as like about New Zealand or a No, it's not about New Zealand, Zealand but again, this, this conceit that Sam Neill had about the cinema of unease, which was the... the well, I guess what oh, I'm pointing... it's the unease. It's, it's the, it's the uh, thing about uh, a power dynamic shifting and the unease around that is... Yeah, and the unease about identity. And, and that has to do specifically with New Zealand cinema. This is a New Zealand... You know, this is a New Zealand film, ostensibly, uh, with a New Zealand filmmaker at the helm, filmed in New Zealand, though it is about an American subject. Um, yeah. I think this, this conversation around that kind of... It came full circle to me. I mean, least of which... Again, as I mentioned, I just like seeing New Zealand on screen. There's a I, I recall going to Lord of the Rings and the first shot of an exterior where you saw um, the sunset in New Zealand was like, yeah, that's New, that's what New right. Zealand looks like, and it, it is right. very powerful and palpable to me to kind of see that. And I get what you were saying. I I, uh, I re- retract eighty uh, percent of my previous statement. It, this falls into I wouldn't call it a genre. That's too broad. It falls into <laughs> a few of the um, repeating motifs in New Zealand film. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, But uh, this is an adaptation of a a book by Thomas Savage. Now, interestingly, uh, as I've read about the book, uh, the book was not uh, that popular 
or or um, well sold until I think a reissue of it, which had a forward by Annie Prue, um, which regarded it as one of the greatest books she'd ever read and highly influential to her work. Now, one of the most important works that she has been associated with is Ang Lee's Brokeback Mountain, a mm-hmm. film that also deals with cowboys uh, navigating identity and, in her case, sexuality, also uh, relevant to this particular story. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a long-winded connection to say that this is a really interesting um, a re- reimagination of the cowboy mythos. And I wondered, Matt, just with all of that prologue, how the film sat with you. Uh, I think we've covered a little bit of it already. Obviously, it's shot beautifully. I think the... Um... This movie falls into, for me, a movie that I can look at and be like, this is excellently crafted. I did not enjoy it. Really? Yeah, there are elements that I did. Mm-hmm. Um, but and, and I hope that our conversation kind of helped nail it down. Because I... It's a slow film, but I don't think that's its problem. I, I, to be honest, this, this, is the, this is the terrible thing. I don't think it has many problems. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know why it did. Like, I have not thought about it since I finished watching it. When I was watching it, I was just sort of like, you know what it was? Maybe. But this isn't a slight to the film either. This is more me or whatever. And I, I was bummed because, like I said, I was primed. I didn't. This was not an assignment. I was like, yeah, I'm going to watch this. This is great. Like, it wasn't like a time-locked thing. Um, I kind of... Not that this is important, because the mystery or whatever is not important in this movie, but I knew exactly where it was going from, like, minute 10. Okay. Um, from the moment that they were in the um, the uh, Kirsten Dunst's character, uh, Rose, was yeah, it? Rose. Yeah, Rose. Um, again, another character from Resident Evil 8. Um <laughs> Maybe you've just been playing too together. much Resident Evil 8. Maybe maybe that's what it is. Yeah. Um, the narratives, uh, the direct sequel to yeah. Power of the Dog, Resident Evil 8. Um, from when they were in her, like, um, her, not bread and breakfast, her restaurant or her whatever restaurant, that, the yeah. equivalent of that thing is, the, the common house there. Um, I was like, oh, okay, this, 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 this. And then it all played out. Now, granted, it plays out beautifully. The cinematography is awesome. I think the acting is really, really strong. Um... Though, I will say, everyone, and maybe this is, like, the time period or what we're supposed to think of 1925 or, like, or, or what the deal is, everyone felt muzzled. How do, you, like, how, do you, how do you mean? Like, every performance of every character felt the same level of, I'm keeping everything inside and I'm never going to let you see it except for tiny micro-eye movements, except maybe Kirsten Dunst, who eventually has a little bit more of a breakdown than the rest of the characters. Mm. But, like, and to me, Walt, because everyone was doing that, these beautiful performances all kind of washed together, and, like, there was never a standout moment. There was never, like, a, I don't know, it didn't, I, I had I had sort of seen what was going to happen in my head, and then it played out that way. All of the characters were this sort of like buckled down stoic with some sort of thing on the inside. But like, I, I I wanted a little bit of variation in the in the type of character I was seeing, not like motivation or or any of that stuff. But like everyone felt kind of the same 
mm-hmm. from 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 a um, emotional standpoint. So uh, why don't we establish maybe who the characters are? Which sure. is so uh, you got Phil. Yeah, you got Phil, play, who's uh, played by Doctor Strange, <laughs> um, who is basically the the cowboy's cowboy. Uh, he's the dude who. No, yeah, he's the dude. Mm. He he uh, is the protege of Bronco. Fuck what the Bronco Bronco what? Henry Henry that yeah. which fucking perfect cowboy name by yeah. the way Bronco Henry cowboy names need to be both tough as nails and silly as shit and right. Bronco Henry is like <laughs> just perfect I, I don't know to me Bronco Henry sounded yeah like a like very much like a circus performer but uh, but that yeah. but that's my point yeah that's my like it's just oh it's just this I don't know okay. um uh he had the protege of Bronco Henry who has kind of taken out of the two brothers um uh the other brother of course played by the always lovely uh Jesse Plemons mm-hmm. uh George um they uh run a ranch or a, a cattle ranch mm-hmm. um but like Phil is very particular he he's the guy who does the work and George is the guy who runs the business and they have their family's home I guess uh yeah. and they're sort of taking care of it etc um and then uh George uh falls for Rose played by Kirsten Dunst also lovely to see Kirsten Dunst I can't remember the last movie I've seen Kirsten Dunst in um I just I, I've always liked her, and I wondered wh- where'd she been. Oh, she's um, been making a lot of movies, by the way. I know, but I I have not seen them. Oh, okay. So it's, uh, it's... L- least of which you can watch uh, Jesse Plemons and Kristen Dunst in uh, the uh, Fargo uh, season two. Uh, she's wonderful in that. Uh, the the show? Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, the and so you have these sort of three characters, and when and when Rose moves into the house with her son Peter, played by Cody Smith McPhee, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, they. Uh, that like what you said, the undercurrent of a power dynamic is all fucked up because Phil liked it when it was just him and his brother, mm-hmm. and now there's this woman and her son moving in, so he's gonna make their lives a living hell, right. and then things start going from that particular point, which we can get to as we go. So, but throughout all this, back to my my original point, especially for the first two thirds of this movie, it felt like everyone was like working under the same note of like you are deeply frustrated. Do not show it. And it's like, and I I get that that's sort of probably of the time. Like, there's many reasons not to. Phil is a bit of a sociopath in many different ways uh, and wants a certain uh, things to be a certain way. Uh, George is sort of calm and stoic just because he always is. Kirsten Dunst obviously is uh, in a very uncomfortable position trying to get, like, here she is. She's a widow moving in with her teenage son. Uh, you know, there's, there's, there's a toughness in that. And then of course, Peter, um, who has an awkward interaction with Phil at the restaurant, um, is is not the most, uh, uh, social of, of gentlemen. Uh, he's a medical student who, uh, likes (laughs) minor spoilers, uh, killing rabbits to see how they work. Um, He's practicing vivisection. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like as you do. Yeah. Um, As you would if you're a medical student. Um, so but 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 to to the point it do, this movie does a uh, an interesting thing where it does paint peter in that particular there's other aspects too but like it does paint him as an odd duck like in this world like he brings the bunny back and there's all cute and like whatever and then you get a hint of like how his mind works where he's like oh no I'm just going to fucking axis thing and dissect it cuz like doctor right yeah. like so 
those are the four main characters um, that are sort of uh, spinning around each other's orbits. Right. And again, I don't want to sound like I'm saying that this is a bad movie. I don't think it is. I think it was actually like thinking about it critically. I'm like, oh, this is this is great. Mm-hmm. But in the moment, I wasn't really enjoying myself outside of like little tiny pockets that would happen. Okay. Um, and I, I, I don't know. I, I feel like I've been rambling for a while. What did you think, think of the film, Shahir? Uh, I, you know, like I, I was set up for this film in the worst possible way, mm. which was that uh, a, it's Jane Campion, which is a filmmaker of note, and I felt like I hadn't watched uh, enough of her films to to kind of really uh, get into it. So I was I was sort of excited to to take it seriously. Yeah. Uh, as an experience, it has obviously appeared on several filmmakers, uh, several, several critics lists as the number one film of the year. Uh, it is uh, poised at this point to probably be, potentially be uh, Netflix's first best picture uh, win. And um, and then a listener, a uh, friend, uh, friend of the show, who uh, like wrote into me and said, I just want to let you know, I saw The Power of Dog last night, and it is not only the best film I saw this year, it's probably the best film I've seen in the last 20 years. And really? this, per- and this wow. person is uh, a person whose opinion I respect uh, greatly. Uh, they're a screenwriter. They know and understand film really, really, really well. Um, <laughs> At first, I was going to say, is it you? Yeah, it was. Yeah. <laughs> Dear Shahir. <laughs> Dear Shahir. Love Shahir. I would love it. In Zodiac, there is a moment where the Mark Ruffalo's <laughs> character starts writing letters to himself as the Zodiac. And I got to re- I got to rewatch Zodiac. You've, it's brought up, been brought up so much on this I podcast. Know. Uh, recently, but uh, at, at any rate, so I was primed to see this movie uh, in the worst possible way because there's no way that if someone tells you this is the best film that they've seen in the last 20 years yeah. that a film can live up to that. I was surprised how much w- once I got to the end of the film, I understood what that person was talking about, which is that I, it, it's perhaps not the best film I've seen in the last 20 years for me, but I can totally see how someone gets to that point with this particular movie. Mm. Um, and I think the, there's there's a couple of things. One is the obviously the landscape is incredible. Uh, th- there are so many echoes for me personally that I felt I had to get over of um, Paul Thomas Anderson's There Will Be Blood, uh, not least of which <laughs> because of Johnny Greenwood's score, which has similar notes uh, that uh, of of sort of uh, uneasy concerto music uh, that feels uh, slightly off kilter within the That's context. The other that yeah. was the other thing. I, sorry, I, I meant to bring this up too. I was I, I I started to roll my eyes at the score. Really? I was like, yep, uneasy tones, mm. strings dragging. What, what did I you understand think of, what, what I'm supposed to be of, uncomfortable now. What did you think of his score or his work for There Will Be Blood? It, Just, it didn't knock me out. Oh, like, right. But again, it's been a while since I've seen There Will Be Blood. Uh, you and uh, you, you, you shouldn't be in a room with Nick Parker and I. By the way, we we just uh, every time we get together, we sort of just tend to talk about There Will Be Blood at some point. I think we've seen it together Amazing. in movie theaters at least three or four times at this point, uh, <laughs> and we've paid uh, exorbitant amounts of money because we've gone to see live orchestra performances of it. That's uh, dope. Uh, I think we've paid like one hundred fifty dollars a ticket each time <laughs> to go see There Will Be Blood. Look at look at Big Spender Shahir over here. Look at this. <laughs> so, uh, I. I no. My point there is that I love Johnny Greenwood's score in this film, and I think it's so beautifully played. The only issue for me is that I kept thinking about "There Will Be Blood," uh, uh, and and I think that's also echoed in Cumberbatch's performance, which is also the sort of um, somewhat despot sociopath uh, who has a, a sort of power hungry fetish. Um, but but they are, but 
the more I watched it, the real the more I was like, no, no, that's actually just me. I need to get over that because while I'm feeling those echoes, I don't think the film is con- you know like th- these are two entirely different films sure. and both successful in very different ways. And um, so I I I can I while I. I 100% understand why uh, this friend of mine said this was the greatest film uh, that they've uh, you know seen in the last 20 years. I can also appreciate what you're saying, which is that it is a slow, slow burn. What I liked about the slow burn for me personally is that by the time we got to where the film was really landing, um, there was such a rich tapestry of understanding the dynamic between these four characters. And to me, that note uh, about... Um, the same performance. Uh, I, I think for me, Benedict Cumberbatch is obviously uh, his character. Phil is playing in such a different world uh, to the other characters. And what I kind of got the sense for me is that George, um, uh, Peter, and and Rose are kind of living under the shadow of Phil. And the problem is, is that they're all trying to figure out ways to endure Phil's rage. And and Phil is still like the, there's this extraordinary scene uh, right after Phil learns that uh, George is going to marry Rose, where he goes out and starts whipping his horse, uh, oh, like fuck. like brutally beating his horse. Um, and so the the sort of the dynamic of what Phil's what causes Phil's rage and where his rage comes from was just something that was carrying me through through the slower parts of the movie, which is just kind of establishing the the world that these characters live in and what their dynamic is. And so if you want me to never give a shit about a character, right. show them beating a fucking horse. Right. Right. Like like at that moment I was like, "Oh, I don't give a shit what happens to you, dude." Like the story could still be interesting, but like as a character, right. I no longer have sympathy for you at all. I, I don't like, think we're expect I, I don't think the film wants us to have sympathy for him. Like, do we have to have sympathy for every character? Oh, absolutely not. No, no. I'm, I'm, again, I'm, please don't take this as a as a detraction from the film. I'm not saying like, oh, look at this mistake this film made. I'm just saying, ah, yes, thank you, film, for explicitly telling me I will not care how this character meets their grisly fate. How, like, did you feel the same way about um, Cody Smith McPhee when he di- when he dissects the rabbit? Kind of. Well, no, because here's the difference. Actually, I, I that's a great question. I actually was teetering back and forth mm. and and i did i wasn't quite sure because they don't show him killing the rabbit before he dissects it what he does what they do show though i think it was after god i'm trying to remember when phil and him are out to pasture working on the new fence or whatever mm-hmm. then the rabbit gets crushed after their like log throwing game that's a different um, rabbit i know it's a different <laughs> rabbit yeah. but that happens after correct yeah. yeah yeah so when that happens and then phil's like well put it out of its misery uh without hesitation um uh peter just snaps his neck just kink yeah and i was like oh he's not making an animal suffer Mm -hmm. he's in that case he's putting out of his misery in the other case he's again i think it's cold but i don't think it's cruel killing the rabbit to learn vivisection like but beating a fucking horse Mm -hmm. i'm just like fuck you dude like i don't know and i know that there's weird lines here and animal abuse is a specific and and sort of strong trigger thing i know for me yeah so um it didn't i i rode the line because i didn't see how he killed it but the way that it was displayed felt like there was like there was no cruelty in the murder of the rabbit to cut it open, if that makes sense, where all Phil did to that horse was cruel. There's a, there's an interesting thing. And, and what I actually really loved about the movie is that uh, as as the time went on, as, we, as these characters were kind of live, starting to live with each other, we started to understand 
the severe contradictions that were happening within, particularly within Phil, um, mm. which is that he is an educated man. Uh, he is a person that went to is it Yale or Harvard and completed a degree in classics and was uh, known to be uh, an extremely intelligent person. Plays His the bro- banjo like a motherfucker. Plays the banjo really. Well. Yeah, he is, is well-versed in music, well-versed in the classics. Um, um and uh, but also had at some point in his life decided to abandon all of that and 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 uh, after his time with Bronco Henry, whom he reveres on a pit- on an almost godlike pedestal. Oh, there's uh, an altar. Yeah, there's an altar to to, to Bronco Henry. Um, uh, he has decided to embrace the the idea that men are uh, the, the the traits of masculinity. Are a to be admired and to be endured, and that is the that is the journey of a man, which is that how much you can endure, and he does it in sort of really interesting ways, which is that um, right the ver- one of the very first scenes of the movie, uh, George asks him, "Have you ever tried using the bath?" And he's like, "No, why would I do that?" And and you know, like he's invited to a dinner later on, and he makes a real point of not taking a bath because he's got such disdain for any li- any choices of life that is outside of this. And his entire um, his his sort of journey with uh, Peter Cody Smith Fee's character is really based on identifying and antagonizing um, Peter's lack of the masculine traits that he believes a man should have. You know, the the very first thing he does. Uh, Peter is making these flowers out of paper, these origami flowers, and uh, Phil immediately latches onto the fact that these flowers are dainty and pretty, you know, ain't that pretty, um, and then uses it to, 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 to light a cigarette and extinguish it, and, he's, and, he, and he mocks uh, Peter because of it. Uh, which is what causes, it, which kind of sets this whole thing in motion. It, it causes Rose to cry, which George sees, and then George, you know, um, forms a relationship with Rose and gets. And so there's I this. I did like, like the domino effect of how this is. I will now give the film a compliment based on what you just said. Yeah. The 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 connective tissue of how these characters come together is some of the most organic and natural ways I've seen a film start the construction of its narrative. Yeah. Like, and, it, and, and everything is, it just, it's this beautiful tap, it's, it's this, this, like, perfect quilt that just goes in in a lovely sort of, like, interconnected direction. And, like and not that. only that, I think, I think there's just an interesting thing, which is that um, Phil is such, um, such a fearful presence for every other character. Even George, who is his, who is kind of his equal, um, just endures him, you know, like yeah, he doesn't. He calls him Fatso. Yeah, he calls him Fatso on a daily basis. <laughs> I didn't basis. know what the character's name was, George. <laughs> right. Until I looked he was it up. I th- he just calls him Fatso. <laughs> but he just, he, he like, he just doesn't want to talk to him. He doesn't want to, you know, like he doesn't want I, I think by the end of this film, when what happens to Phil happens to Phil, I don't think George is that upset by it. No. You know, like I think there's just an endurance to it. We should get into spoilers, uh, um, but I will say just for me personally, there's, there's a couple things here. One is that uh, I thought the film was extremely extraordinary uh in terms of its its dissection of rabbits yeah the vivisection of uh, the vivisection of phil um <laughs> but also uh, like uh, it's for me uh, i actually rewatched it last night so i've watched it twice at this point and it nice. is a great rewatch as well like it's a it, it's a movie that i feel i not only i understand why this person thought it was the, their, their favorite film in the last 20 years but I, I feel this is a movie that gets richer and richer with every viewing. The second time I watched it around, I was... The, the first time, I think I was a little bit like you, which is that I felt I was waiting for the film to kind of land on the, on the, on the journey that the film was supposed to take. But what I enjoyed about when we got to that point was that 
by the time we started taking the, the real journey of the film, I was so, I, I felt like I really understood who each character was and the relationships between them and the sort of tapestry of um, uh, relationships that was going to happen. What, what drove you to, other than the podcast, of course, what drove you to watch it again? Because I don't, I don't, I, that sounds correct to me. Like mm -hmm. everything you said, I'm like, oh, that makes sense how that could happen. I don't have the drive. Uh, I, I tend to, well, okay, so it, there's a little bit of uh, academic training there for okay. one, which is that um, whenever possible, I will try to move, watch a movie twice for the podcast if I can do it or, sure. and if I feel there's more to be got from a film. Um, and the second time was that I, I really did feel that my, my hesitations about certain elements of the film were based on a preconceived bias of There Will Be Blood. Of what I saw as a correlation between this and there will be blood. I just felt like I kept on seeing echoes of notes. And when I watched it a second time, I just shook that off completely and watched the film on its own terms. And I found it so much of a richer experience. But I also just, I think, um, this is not the answer to your question because what I'm saying here is what I got out of it a second time as opposed to why I watched it a second time. <laughs> Okay, um, but, but that might, I mean, that maybe you knew that something like that would happen? Yeah, but I also was happy to revisit it because uh, I think there was such a rich tapestry of detail in, particularly, okay, so from the first viewing, the thing that I thought was interesting were little nuggets of, of like, anecdotal evidence that they, that they presented about who Phil was. Okay. And the whole thing with Phil is, like, he is a walking contradiction, Right. Like everything about him is contradictory. He's we are told he's a walking contradiction, but right. we are very rarely shown he is a walking contradiction. Ha, okay, okay. Well, let, let's let's come back to that in okay. In, sorry, in, sorry, in sorry, spoiler, sorry, sorry. In spoiler conversation. Yeah. Um, so I was interested to re revisit the film to see how those contradictions were played out because that was the feeling I got from the first time. And 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 I will say, the, watching it a second time around, those contradictions were so much more like prominent and richer in my brain that I was just excited by the by the second viewing. Right. Okay. Um, and and you know, like like I said, the film actually grew in my in my uh, estimation uh, on the second viewing. So uh, I would highly recommend it. Um, all right. So we can talk spoilers now, right? Yes. Okay. And what was great? Uh, so so I like you. Uh, I like you too. I like you. I like you. There's a guy on TikTok who's a New Zealander who's like ends his uh, ends his phrase with "I like you." Uh, <laughs> we can bring him on the podcast just to do that. Yeah, get him on. <laughs> um, the where the film ended up, I felt was a telegraphed by almost one of the first lines that uh, Phil says, which is that he sees a cow uh, on the field. He says. And it's like, it's in a long shot, but he says, uh, you know, that cow's got anthrax, keep it away from us. And and I was like, the whole way later, I was like, oh boy, that's, that, that, it's just such a strange line. It's such a strange detail not to, you know, come back it's, at some point. It's funny because historically, mm. that is actually a large concern based on the way, because again, people, uh, since people have been people, uh, have been careless with various bad chemicals that do bad things. They could, you know, if they're trying to do whatever, like anthrax in cattle was a big deal right back then for yeah. us today it's a weird like it's a weird like oh that's oddly specific yeah <laughs> uh but yeah i get what you're saying so so and then when um peter goes up into the mountains by himself and he finds a dead cow and he he takes hide from it i was like 
I think I know where this is going. And eventually when Peter ends up uh, killing uh, Phil through uh, Anthrax, um, I was like, I, 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 I think a little bit like you, I was kind of like, okay, I, I knew where that was going. It went there. And the, the sense that it's a mystery or reveal was kind of lost for me because I, I, I felt like I was a hit of the film at that point. But the thing that made me rewatch it is this sort of sense of the contradictions of Phil. And um, what I, I, I love there is those details that were contradictory about him. So the sense that he had abandoned his sort of high society roots, which is that, you know, he went to, he went to college and he was studying the classics. Uh, so he was book learned, but then had at some point met this uh, person, uh, Bronco Henry, who had uh, taken him and George under their wings, uh, under his wing and taught them how to be ranchers. And he idolized that in such a way that he, that he basically, uh, abandons all the, the sort of history of him, which which George, despite being a terrible student and not being able to pass college, kind of still holds on to and still right. yearns for the sort of like high society by, you know, like he in, in, invites the governor to their house and uh, brings a piano in and, you know, tries to get um, uh, Rose to play piano, which is one of the oddly just this sort of cruel thing that he does what that he doesn't realize move. is cruel. What a dick move. Yeah, he just, he doesn't think he's being cruel but we can see on Rose's face how cruel this is. Uh, you know. I, so on that note, I felt like, I mean, this is obviously Phil and Peter's movie. Like, n- no question. Uh, there was a, hmm. There was, so here's the thing. I, I, think it's, I think it's a sort of like it's, a look, circle the four around of them, those of course, four characters. But like, in the grand scheme of what the movie tells us when it tells us it. Mm-hmm. That moment with the piano midway through is kind of the culmination of George and Rose's relationship. Yeah. But like, and then, but then, but also that whole buildup is just a, 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 a setup for a different way Phil can torture Rose. Yeah. But so that's my point. Like, we spend a lot of time on the piano part in the middle part of this movie, and then it has kind of nothing to do with anything. Like, because I I feel like the characters themselves, like, there's, I get where it's going, and I get how it's all connected. Yeah. I just feel like the weight, not not the, like, time, like, I mean, like, the actual physical heft, (laughs) if you could equate it to something like this, is just sort of off. Well, what's the first line of the movie? I don't remember. The first line of the movie is, uh, why wouldn't I protect my mother? And it's, it's Peter in voiceover saying, why wouldn't I, you know, I love my mother. Why wouldn't I do anything to protect her? So Peter's motivation has to do with the spiral that his mother is enduring. Sure, but that spiral with with the piano moment, Mm. that's George too. It like, is, it, but George is not. I, I, in my opinion, now remember the other thing that spiral that 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 causes Rose terror there is the banjo moment with the piano. So a hundred percent, Phil is actually antagonizing her, and and then the, the the sort of the greatest moment of cruelty is oddly not George's. Um, you know, like yes, it's it's a dick move to do this, but he's not doing it with malintent. He just thinks that this would be good, and and you know, like he thinks that she can. He he even says to her, "I think you play beautifully," and that's you know what I would like to hear. Um, so he thinks he's kind of like worshiping her in a way. But um, Phil comes finally makes it to the um, to the actual dinner with the governor, and then 
you know, like points out, you know, like very pointedly, oh, she didn't play the piano. That's odd. She's really been practicing. Um, and, you know, like really high because she says, oh, I, for some reason, I just can't play right now. You know, uh, I used to play in in, um, in movie houses, but I just mm-hmm. can't play right now. So she's kind of like trying to treat it as though it's not something she's been building up to, but she's been dreading it the whole time. And Phil knows it and Phil points it out and actually like brings it to the forefront, which kind of is probably in my mind, at least far crueler than George. Oh, hundred percent. If we're looking at, if we're going to rate the cruelty scale, yeah. yes, Phil win. Yeah. But like I, the movie display wise, yeah. like characters time on screen makes the four of them pretty equal for the first half of it. Mm-hmm. And then it doesn't. Well, what's happening to Rose? So the interesting thing here is what's happening to Rose in the second half of the movie? She's uh, spiraling with alcoholism. She's spiraling uh, with alcoholism. And what... uh, George just goes away. George is gone. He's gone. He's gone to school and then he comes over. He comes... uh, Sorry. Yeah, George is kind of there. Uh, uh, Peter goes away to school and then he comes over in the summer. No, no. I'm not talking about Peter. I'm talking about George. By the time time, uh, Peter comes in... George is kind of out. He's, like, yeah, he's on the periphery. I, I, I see what you're saying about the weight, but I, I again, I think there for me, there's just like an interconnectedness of of this whole thing. I felt and, that way until then. Like, Peter, that, that's what I'm saying. Peter's Peter's motive for doing what he does has to do with how he sees his mother's life spiraling out. A hundred percent. No, the and, motive is clear. Yeah, I'm saying the weight of what the movie is showing us. Again, I. Like much like you said, Anthrax Cal line at the beginning of the movie. We knew where this movie was going. That's not a slight to the movie. Yeah, it's just I felt like it was really well uh, balanced in the first half to two thirds, and then the end when we're sort of getting to something, it was just a real slow roll to get to the thing that we knew was all coming. Yeah, and that's not I, to say there's not interesting moments for, yeah. from characters, great performances, etc. But there was something about that that didn't. That I, I, I actively went at the end of the movie, I was like, I don't think I really enjoyed that. Like, <laughs> and, and again, I hate, I, this is my least favorite type of, not, not again, this is not a slight to the movie. Mm-hmm. These kind of discussions, I always feel bad. <laughs> like, like, like I'm doing something wrong because I can look at this, I, I mean, for, uh, I'll lose this term very loosely, academically, mm-hmm. and I can be like, look at this fucking awesome movie. And and then I, I I think back to my actual experience of watching it, and I'm like, why? I don't I didn't I didn't that, enjoy myself. I I think that is like particularly you know with I'll even say with the piano for example that was a movie I put off watching because I felt like I knew what kind of movie it might be, mm. and I was not looking forward to sitting down to watch that kind of movie, you know, like a, a historical drama about post-colonial New Zealand with a woman and a piano suffering, uh, you know, sitting <laughs> against the landscape. And I was like, put okay, that yeah, in the I, box. I kind of know what it is. Uh, I, I will watch it at some point. But then when I watched it, I was enraptured by it. And I was like, oh, you know what? I'm being an idiot here because there is so much to this movie. And in the case of the piano, it's so... Um, it's so exciting to watch these characters play with each other and the dynamic of each of these characters and what their worldviews are and how those worldviews will clash and transform each other. And so the thing in coming back to the power of the dog that I thought was interesting for me was this notion that like Phil is both 
wanting to be cruel to Peter because Peter is also representative of Rose, which is something he just doesn't want in his house. And at the same time, he recognizes in Peter some of the same qualities that existed in Bronco Henry, particularly the 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 notion of like, what do you see in the mountain? And Peter yeah. immediately says, it's a barking dog. And like everyone he's talked to about this is like not seen that. And 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 Phil has equated that inability to see that with the kind of enlightenment he has now arched his life around. Right? Like he believes yeah. that the the sort of masculinity that he has embraced is is a form of uh, 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 like living life to its fullest. Here's something I really liked. Yeah. I will say that moment when when Peter sees the dog in the mountains and feels like, "What? You just saw that? Yeah, you just saw that now." <laughs> so there's there's an interesting shift. It doesn't just change to, "Oh, now Peter is either uh, likes." I'm sorry, that Phil likes Peter or is attracted to Peter in some way or any of that sort of thing. It's more than that. He he P- Phil. And this is an interesting character balance to walk. Phil likes Peter now, mm. but can also still use Peter to torture Rose. Yeah. Like, there's a weird, that level of balance I was hyper impressed with. Because I was like, oh, maybe at this point, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they're going to turn it around and they're going to become like a weird family. And there's going to be the awkwardness of that just relationship, but no more malice. Nope. Like, no, no, because, <laughs> because Phil has lived this life. This is the thing. is Phil is grizzled at this point. I, I will say there's an interesting thing, which is that I'm not sure how old Benedict Cumberbatch is, but there was a thought in my head that, I mean, he's probably in his 40s or something like that. Yeah. Um, there's a thought in my head that if this movie was made 40, no, even 50 years ago, a 40-year-old man playing that role would look much, much older and much like, like Benedict Cumberbatch. Well, yeah, that's how time works. You no, know, no, but Benedict Cumberbatch feels... Like he's he feels like a a forty year old today, which feels young, and and, and oh like, god, I hope so. And like you know, like if you watch a, a City Slickers, for example, which is just the comedy, I think Billy Crystal in that film is forty years old, and you think about you know, like there's just this sort of age dynamic that's different about like where we are in the world today versus skin regiments have <laughs> yeah, grown we're, just, we're, we're much better with moisturizers than we are <laughs> back then. But like, but Phil in this movie is meant to be grizzled. He is old. You know, this is 1925, so uh, mortality rates are very different to ours. So 40 years old is probably like um, pretty set in your ways at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, so he can't let go of his cruelty. And the thing is, his cruelty is really interesting because it's also offset by moments of clear tenderness that he had with Bronco Henry. Mm -hmm. And it's a tenderness, um, and this comes back to the Annie Prue um, sort of correlation of this, because it has to do with his probable homosexuality that he has repressed his entire life and doesn't know how to express, and is because he has... Because he is a person that studied the classics, that quotes Romulus and uh, uh, Romulus and Remus, uh, you know the Greek tragedy, uh, is is someone who knows about the history of homosexuality, but also has chosen to like overcompensate for his feelings of homose- uh, 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 for his homosexuality. And there there is an uneasiness about that because you know there is the sort of the the trope of the the self loathing homosexual. And and this is a film that kind of is na- navigating around that, mm-hmm. um, but I think it's done with such a rich tapestry of texture and tenderness. You know, like there's a sort of beautiful moment when he goes. Uh, he he has his own sort of um, pond that he goes to uh, to swim I, in. I was and- confused by the pond. You have to crawl through this like Alice in Wonderland hole to get to a part of the river. I was like, couldn't you just? 
go on the riverbank. It, maybe it's maybe it's a very small pond or something like I that. Know. You know, but it, yeah, it is the the. But I I I like the poetry of this sure. hidden place. Yeah, uh, as opposed Fair. to like the logic of like. Hey, George is like, hey, I didn't know we had a pond back here. Yeah, <laughs> <You> know, yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> what are you been doing hiding out of this pond? Yeah. What are the what are these comics you got this, back here? This mud is great. <laughs> yeah, let's all come out here. <laughs> um, but you know, like it is offset by these moments of tenderness, which is that um, you see, I, my my my. What's great is that they don't show you the Bronco Henry story, and you're only having to intimate what the Bronco mm-hmm. Henry story is. And you're obviously aware that the Bronco Henry story has to do with the the smells and the dirt and the the sort of roughness of it all. And that is what Phil has anchored his life around. And any change to that is an offense to him. You know, like he is angry when uh, he, he sort of hung on to this childlike sense of his that he and his brother sleep in the same bed or in the same room. Yep. And, and like, the fact that, you know, like, he when he comes up into um, Rose's restaurant, uh, I, love, I love just this one little detail in terms of how cruel he is, by the way, just a side uh-huh. note, is he goes to her uh, visitor, bo- uh, visitor book, you know, the visitor notebook, yep. and he writes, shit bourbon. And then walks up to it. I was like, that is so pity and so cruel. Yeah. Um, it's just, a, it's just like, a, 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 I love the little detail which demonstrates like how deep your cruelty is. Um, it's, it, to me, that's like weirdly uh, more, not, not worse than beating your horse, but, but also like it demonstrates like how, like it's just so ingrained in his psyche to be this cruel all It the is time. not worse than beating a horse. It is a different, much less form of, of pinprick cruelty. Yeah. And it's just like, you don't need, you know, you don't need to say this thing, but he just like shit bourbon. Um, and then he's like upset, you know, he can't find George in the house and he's like annoyed by the fact that he can't find George in the house. And then he, you know, like the fact that George is no longer going to sleep in the room with him. Um, like even one of the first things he does is he asks George, shall we go up to the hills like Bronco Henry taught us, catch us an elk and cook its liver on the, uh, uh over a fire. You know, like he just wants to go back to this place, you know, like that's, mm-hmm. that's all he really wants to do. And anything that, that, that it feels like it's propelling him to away from that life or propelling their family into modernity is something that he is just going to violently react against. Um, and so even um, Peter's kind of like uh, effemininity uh, is something that is an offense to him because it also, it kind of taps into the side that he is afraid of himself. Yeah, and, but then there, with the moment where that he sees the dog in the, in the hills, yeah. that sort of changes. Like, yeah. Uh, that is uh, a thing where he's like, I don't know if it's more about, he's always, Phil has always valued the ability of him and Bronco Henry to like see what the mountains really are or yeah. whatever, however you want to put that thing. It's in, shadow, it, his right? enlightenment, yeah. Yeah. All of a sudden this this character, Peter, who he has um, uh, tortured him and his mother because uh, 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 he sees something in Peter that he doesn't uh, like in himself, sees the dog yeah well now oh shit this there's value to this person like that I, I have not seen this thing yeah and then there's this sort of transformation of like where where uh phil's sort of value proposition comes from granted it doesn't change the cruelty um he 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 starts to he he wonders about a world in which he and peter are now together or yeah, he, the, the, in in whatever sort of configuration that makes sense for Phil. I don't exactly know. I don't know if it's romantic. I don't know if it's like their business partners or I don't know what. 
but he I, sort of I mean, starts I to see I, it that way. The way the movie is coded uh, with the with various um, close-ups on ropes and or cowboy implements based in 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 uh, situations that could be, depending on your mood, considered sexual. Mm. Uh, I think it is leaning towards uh, somewhat of a romantic relationship. Perhaps, um, yeah. The the and it, and it's so funny because to me no matter what peter's proclivities are in that department peter has been not peter is displayed i think as a bit of a um to, to me the read i got was a bit of an asexual being if if phil yeah. is if phil is uh, possibly repressed in his desires in that way, uh, bisexual or whatever. Um, that's one thing. Peter, the way we've seen Peter, you never see him have any sort of moment that gives you a hint of what his proclivity might be. And then the end, of course, when the rope is being made with the anthrax water and yada, 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 um, he does have those moments, but then because of what came before and what you see after, you kind of are like, oh no, this is the same cold calculation as when he killed the rabbit. What, like, I, what I love about Peter's character is in a world where there is uh, there are characters both burdened under the weight of masculinity, overcompensating their masculinity, uh, femininity being eroded away, Peter's character is the most self-assured, confident person in a swarm around him that would that would try that even outwardly attempts to bring him down. Yeah. You know, there's the most And he of, wins with science. Yeah, and he wins with science, but he's also he's just so self-assured and doesn't need to show it. He's oddly uh, like uh, this is not necessarily a masculine trait, but that is a, a trait in masculinity that I think is really interesting is when someone is self-assured. And You know what's interesting? I don't think that's a Weirdly enough, it, it I don't think that's a masculine trait. Feminine. I don't think that's a masculine or yeah. feminine trait at all. I think we, societally, not you and me, but we probably do it too, uh, misconstrued confidence and self-assuredness with masculinity. As you're absolutely right. Um, because because more often than not, yeah, there the are more Phils than there are Peters, if yeah. that makes sense when it comes to self-assuredness or yeah. or the the broadcasting of, of air quotes well, self-assuredness. That, that's exactly right. Because the thing is, is Phil, is Phil is, uh, his broadcasting of self-assuredness is masking a deep insecurity about his yeah. own identity. And, and that's not to say that skill-wise, people that do that, Phil, et cetera, don't have the skills to be self-assured Speaking as a deeply, um, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Un unconfident person that I think does, uh, when necessary, exude a form of confidence. That makes total sense. Like, yeah. but yeah, I, I think it's. I think um, society in general would do well to to divorce uh, confidence and self assuredness from the concept well, of masculinity and femininity. There's a there's that incredible scene where basically, and Phil is observe, uh, observing this is uh, the basically all the workers have come to the ranch to work for the to to, to actually herd the cattle over the summer, and Peter. Uh, walks through his jeans are like perfectly pristine yep. they barely fit him someone else is you know does that boy not know to like soak, soak his, his jeans soak his jeans and everyone's kind of whistling at him calling him a pansy or a sissy or whatever and he's walking along and he looks up and, and he walks along and endures that entire tidal wave of like uh, abuse and stops and looks up at a bird and like all of a sudden everyone's just quiet because they 
I, 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 the read I get of it is that they didn't see the bird there or whatever it was, like a hawk or something like that with a nest, and he did. And, you know, and then he just, like, walks away, like, completely calmly. And his, uh, there is an interesting backstory uh, from the book, which is not in the movie, and it was, it's probably the biggest omission from the movie to the book. But I, there's an interesting thing, which is that I, I loved learning this detail from the book, um, but I don't want to, and, and I think that this detail makes the story richer for me, but I also don't want to, um, dismiss the decision to omit it because I think in the omission, there's still interesting parts of this there's as well. There's a lot of buildup here. What, what's the thing? The buildup is, is that, uh, Peter and Rose's husband who committed suicide, which mm-hmm. they do talk about in the film. Uh, and I think they do talk about the alcoholism involved with uh, his suicide, um, and who also was a doctor, may have been spurred on by a um, an event that involved Phil and his father. So it's like this cruelty um, is is cyclical, and and Rose is actually af- uh, more afraid of Phil because of she knows that Phil uh, was probably in some way responsible. Uh, or it has some part in her husband's death. Oh, I think I'm glad they omitted that. Yeah, that, I think that, I, that I, adds I, a lot more questions than answers them, and oh, makes how, makes the relationships a lot more messy. How does that? Because uh, to me, that means well, that the reason for Peter to kill Phil seems oh, no, that, much more but, clear. But like Peter has enough reason to kill Phil. Yeah, uh, with with Peter's character as Peter's character is presented, it would make me question Rose more because if. You're going to go marry the brother of the dude that drove your previous husband to suicide. That makes it a lot more complex for me to get on board with what's happening. I mean, I think those are the choices that she had to make but or that she makes. But but th- to me, that also means that her her um, uh, spiraling into alcoholism also makes more sense to me. I think it I think it may it. The decision making when she's clean makes far less sense, and therefore the the, the Jenga tower t- topples a little bit closer to the beginning for me. So I'm glad they left that out. To yeah, be I, I I don't want to I don't want to uh, merit or demerit the the, the yeah. film based on that omission. But I I thought that was a really interesting detail. Um, it, it, essentially, what it says is that Phil's cruelty to the these two people runs further than the things that we've seen in the book. Uh, in I the think film. the movie m- moves the needle of Phil's cruelty towards these people just enough. Yeah, I think the balance pretty, is maintained. It's pretty cruel. Um, so I love that that um, Peter's character is so just like brilliantly confident in his abilities despite his physical, mm-hmm. like his physical presence is much more diminutive compared to everybody else. And then he's picked upon, but he's just like, he's actually calm about it. And like, you know, his... Um, his uh, when I rewatched it, uh, the the lo- the symmetry that I loved was that the very first thing he's doing is making these origami um, origami flowers, and then at the very end, he's kind of what we realize is that um, when Phil starts talking him to about making a rope and Bronco Henry, it's like the same that it's the same tactile quality of like weaving, which yep. is what they're both doing, and and peter recognizes this and like plays along kind of beautifully because he knows the game that he's going to play and he does it so like carefully where he doesn't let phil know like he doesn't he doesn't use this as a moment to like reinterrogate the the first thing that their first yeah, he just goes with it he just goes with it because he knows that like 
he see the the great thing is here. Peter sees right through Phil in a way that probably nobody else does. He yeah. sees the he sees the power of the dog. And, well, and this is I think this will be my final thought too. The the moment that I did like about it, despite the fact that as a whole, it I I still sit by my my thing of um. It, it it did not connect with me on a on a like oh I enjoyed watching this film but I can still see the quality of of what is being presented one moment that did one moment that I was like ah oh, oh this is I okay was the connectivity of before when when the moment with the soaking jeans and all that stuff when Peter's walking outside and he's playing with the dog and then Phil just whistles and the dog just runs away yeah. <laughs> and then at the end once Phil's dead it's just Peter walking and playing with the dog yeah I was like. Yeah. Yeah. Like that that was a real that was that was the moment where I was like I I, I everything in this movie sh- does show you from an academic level how how well crafted this movie is and I can see why Actually, I don't know if I can. I don't want to I don't want to I don't want to overpraise based on my own assessment. Mm. I I respect those who think this is the best film of the year because there's a lot to love here. For whatever reason, if it was due to the character imbalance near the end or the fact that I did think that most of the performances, not not the complexities of what the characters were doing, but the way that it was presented to us did feel very samey. Uh, there was a level of sort of like malaise that did wash over me and I didn't quite enjoy the movie outside of those specific moments where I was like, ooh. Um, so again, I, I, I always feel bad about this these type of things because... I try to nail down why it didn't connect with me uh, or why it didn't last with me, I should say, uh, even though there are moments of genius and and the movie itself is crafted with a lot of love and care. Um, I do recommend people watch it. Uh, I, I, I hope people, and it seems like more people are falling on the side of getting something really nice and powerful out of it than I did. Um, and that makes me happy. So I guess that's my frown upside down moment. It, while it was not for me, I, I see how this could very possibly be a, a best picture uh, winner. Yeah, uh, I, I look, I, I think um, I can certainly see your point of view on terms of like it is a slow burn. It's a it's it's a film that is about um, little details. And if that if the if the if the little textures don't enrapture you. Um, and you kind of feel like you know where this film is going, then it can be, you know, it's it's like, yeah, it's great. It's good. I appreciate it. You know, yada, yada, yada. But uh, for me, um, I think, and th- this may be also why I'm glad I watched The Piano at the age that I watched it at, <laughs> which is uh, just a few months ago. The I find that, that those minor details and those minor observations about human beings are really profoundly exciting to watch. And they're really, you know, like, again, I just, I love that the film is building on these, like, contradiction, contradictory layers about this character. And this performance from from Benedict Cumberbatch is so ferocious and angry. And you, and you feel like it's an affectation. And, like, there's such a degree of, like, minor and large cruelty at play that you're kind of like, what is this? Why is this person the way he is? Mm-hmm. And at the end of it, you don't really get a sense of... What I love is that the totality of his of his life doesn't all add up. But you go, but that is the totality of this person's life, and I'm more and I'm interested in seeing the totality of people's lives that I don't fully get and I don't really understand and I don't quite uh, appreciate in 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 
in its entirety. And I and I and I kind of I think maybe I'm excited by the idea of movies tapping into these sort of unusual gray areas where we don't fully get exactly what's about why we're here. Um, well, I mean, I think I, I like that stuff too, and yet that, for that's me, my pitch for why yeah, I like the movie. I see. That's my, yeah. that's my pitch for like why I think that, uh, gotcha. I'm excited by the gotcha, movie. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Um, which is that it is, uh, it's it's messy and strange, and there is this sort of textural quality to it that is like uh, off-putting and unsettling and uneasy. Uh, again, watch Sam Neill's documentary, The Cinema of Unease, um, mm. but. I yeah I I watched it with a sense and then just from a look uh, we haven't actually talked about Jane Campion much on this but there's this like a there's a joy here in watching a master working so confidently you know like so and it, it's sort of silly for me to say so confidently because she has been a master for many you know like long before this movie but it's just like oh yeah there's a reason why you're Jane Campion. You know, like, you know, like, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm the dummy here. There's a reason you're Jane Campion. Yeah. And, and this this is the reason you're Jane Campion. You're fucking amazing. You know, yeah. like, this is this is incredible, uh, incredible craftsmanship and and uh, a, a sense of, like, clear uh, character work that is interesting and nuanced and also, like, rich in detail. I just like, yeah, fucking, yeah, I get it. There I see go. it. All right. <laughs> Well, this has been the only podcast about the film The Power of the Dog, but before we go, yeah. we're going to touch base with our with our Topam correspondent Laura all the way from watching all the Sundance films. Yeah, she watched uh, a bunch of Sundance films. Thanks again, Laura, for doing this. Uh we will uh, the chick is in the mail. Yeah, it is it, it, <laughs> <laughs> it's man, it's gonna be enough to retire on. Uh all right, let's let's play the clip. Hey, Shahir and Matt. I hope you guys are well. Uh, loving the podcast as always. And thanks for asking me to send this in. So yeah, I'm sure most of you are aware Sundance went all online for their festival this year. I don't know if that was an intentional choice from the festival, but it was just really great to technically speaking attend a film festival again. It's been a while since I've been able to travel and I used to always try and fit in some sort of international film festival with my travels. So yeah, it was nice to kind of experience it again. The seven films I watched were uh, After Yang by Koganada, Fresh by first time director Mimi Cave, Cha Cha Real Smooth by Cooper Rafe, Living by Oliver Hermanis, Am I OK, which was dual directors Tina Taro and Stephanie Elin, Emily the Criminal, which was first time director John Patton Ford, and finally Duel by Riley Stearns. So my favorites. After Yang, if you like Koganada's first film, Columbus, I think you you're just gonna love After Yang. It's, it's good. he brings his style from that one, but but it fits into this sci-fi world that's based on a short story. And he just does some amazing things here. The performances are kind of slightly heightened or almost abstract. He does some really like fascinating editing choices as well, which I don't want to spoil, but you'll know what I'm talking about when you see it. Probably a five out of five for me, but I also really would like to watch it again. Okay, and then Duel, it's insane. Like it's it's brilliant. If you liked Riley Stern's first film, The Art of Self-Defense, again, like the style and the sort of the blunt comedic deliveries he had in that, 
works even better, in my opinion, in this world that he creates. And I think the ending is a bit controversial, so I'm looking forward to seeing people talk about that. And so that brings me to Cha-Cha Real Smooth. I recently came across Cooper Rafe's uh, Shit House, and I just fell in love with that movie. He even like the story behind him making it and kind of just tweeting at Jay Duplass and that all working out is brilliant. So I would say look into that if you haven't. It's just great to see that with the the resources and and experience he's got now that he's still able to pull off just a brilliant movie. Um, this is probably my favorite performance from Dakota Johnson and she's doing a lot lately. So that's saying a lot. It feels a bit like Lady Bird, I would say. It's just a bloody nice watch. So yeah, that's my summary of my experience at Sundance. I hope more festivals go online this year. I will be trying to attend for sure. And I hope these movies come out soon so we can all watch them and talk about them. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Laura. That's uh, great. So again, just summarizing that, after Yang, Cha-Cha Real Smooth and Duel. Uh, I'm getting a real, uh, uh, Laura probably loves Yagos Lanthimos. Uh, I love Riley Strands for his oddities as well. I want to be an asshole here, which was that um, uh, the Art of Self-Defense was not Riley Strands' first movie. It was a movie called Faults. Jesus. Uh, <laughs> I'm, we I'm we get one dick. correspondent, <laughs> no. and you have to just, wow. I'm such an asshole. Uh, thank you again, Laura. I really appreciate uh, you taking the time to do that, and we will definitely keep an eye on those movies and hopefully have uh, further discussions on you, those. You got me pumped for Cha-Cha Real Smooth, I, is, is, I, and I know nothing about that, about but like, is it yeah. about the, electric, the, the, the dance move at the weddings? Uh, like, no, it's about a bar mitzvah, as far as I know. Oh, well, but that makes uh, sense. Maybe, maybe because, they did a Cha-Cha because Real Smooth at the bar mitzvah. That ha- like, has to play in there somewhere. But listen, if anything is equated to Lady Bird, I am in. Yeah. Um, no, that sounds awesome. Also, a little bit confused about the duel because I thought we 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 reviewed the last one of those. Oh yeah. So there was, there's no more. No, no. There's this no is more actually, duels. No, no, no. That was duel with an e. Oh. This is duel with an oh, a. Oh. Okay. Then so they can be sense. more than fine. one because it's there's fine. duel. You know? Yeah. No, it makes total sense. All yeah. right. Well, again, Lord, thank you so much. That was lovely. If you'd ever like to. Uh, correspond for us again we would be happily pay you double of what we were paying you now um uh, we, we will always <laughs> the joke is podcasting has no money uh and we, we all know, we do just this be, for the just love to of the be game clear about it yeah um, um also uh yeah well maybe we should start a film club or something at some point so we can all talk about these movies yeah, uh or fun. maybe you know what maybe start a podcast um <laughs> oh yeah i've heard podcasts are really big yeah a lot of money there i a lot of money to be made in podcasts <laughs> Definitely, definitely the time to cash ratio really pays off. No. Uh, anyway, everybody, thank you so much for listening. Um, Shahir, when you are not just rolling up in your Lambo to whatever banking establishment you have to drop off fat stacks, where can folks find you? Uh, you can find me um, uh, enlisting all of our listeners into basically do our jobs for us and being very grateful for doing so at my website, www.shahirdaud.com. That's S-H-A-H-I-R-D-A-U-D.com. Matt, when you are flying into the moon like a super-powered kryptonite-powered dog, where can people find you? Oh, man, I'm totally crypto, uh, but not the shitty NFT Bitcoin bullshit. <laughs> the dog that Superman has. Oh, we should make some power of the dog NFTs, baby. No, we yeah. should not. I fucking goddamn grifts. Um, you can find me 
shaking my f- oh, old man <laughs> yells at cloud uh, at my website m a t t h e w k r o l dot com. My life and works also Skeletor the number four P R E Z on Instagram or Emperor M S K on Twitter. Uh, also, please check out the good works we are doing over on Extra Credits. By the time this drops, our first Empire of Brazil series will be out. It is a phenomenal five parter. The beginning. I didn't know much about Brazil before we started doing uh, this series, and my God. What a fucking weird ass, wonderful, odd historical tale. Mm-hmm. Um, love that very much. And then, uh, oh, also over on Nebula, uh, w- where we are uh, sort of uh, hosted over there as well. Uh, if you go to watchnebula.com and sign up, if you want to, because uh, we don't have our own sign up code, you can use the code extra credits to get uh, 26% off of the regular price for a whole year, I think. Yeah. Um, the reason I'm pitching this to you is uh, my episode of Working Titles just dropped, which is a series about, originally it was about a television show opens and dissecting them, and this season, season two, is about video game opening moments. Hmm. And I did a a, a video I'm very proud of over there on the opening of the original Bioshock. Oh, yeah. um, Complete with an interview with uh, David uh, Flamboris, who was the uh, artist who designed the quintessential lighthouse and a lot of Rapture's uh, look and skyline. Right. Um, And I... Bioshock Infinite, not Bioshock... No, Bioshock the original, 2017. Okay. Although the lighthouse does happen in there. Don't worry about it. Yeah, yeah. I've, um, I've played both. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what a. I, I, I posit that it is the. It balances the most plates and is the best opening to any video game ever because it sets up not only its mechanics, but its world building and narrative in ways that feel so natural that you are ready for any wackadoo thing the game throws at you. Um, regardless, I'm so proud of that. If you if you are a Nebula subscriber or want to, please go check that out. There's a bunch of other good ones from folks over there, and of course, all the other commercial uh, ad free stuff uh, over there as well. Anyway, that's all from me, uh, Shahir. Any last any last words about dogs? About dogs? Um, don't let them out. Who let them out? Don't, well, it, oh, no one did yet. No one did yet. But it, you know what? It's a real film move to let out the dogs. It really is. It really would be. Next week. We will be going to the theater, kind to, of. Kind of, yeah, to the theater of our minds. Well, I don't know enough Shakespeare to, to <laughs> yeah. start quoting things, but... D- Noble Bankwell, for, what for, say you? Forsooth. <laughs> I don't know. We'll see. This is going to be great. Uh, we'll talk to you all next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.